From the Clark Ford Studio in Oxford, Mississippi, MVW Digital proudly presents the Oxford Exxon Podcast. I'd say thanks for tuning in, but why am I going to give you a round of applause for something you're supposed to do, to be frank? And now, here are your hosts, Chase Parm. And broadcast school has really paid off. And Neil McCready. I deserve to be on TV. Welcome into this edition of the Oxford Exxon Podcast. I'm your host, Neil McCready. Today on the show, more than an hour, a little about an hour and five minutes or so with Dr. Michael Cunningham. Uh, you all know him as Dr. Mike on the rebelgrove.com message board, The Grove, his daily updates. Actually, he puts them up at night. I think I see them first thing in the morning. Always very informative, typically very comforting. I think you'll enjoy what you'll hear from Dr. Mike in uh, our interview that I conducted a little while ago. We'll get to it in a minute. First, I want to tell you that uh, we're brought to you by the Oxford Exxon, Highway 6 West in Oxford. Uh, be a great place to go get ribs for your 4th of July. Uh, you can give them a call. Let them know ahead of time. Uh, fantastic. You'll love them. Dry or wet, they're great. They also have great beer selection, soda selection, snacks, plate lunches, daiquiris, everything you could possibly want. They've got it there at the Oxford Exxon. Download the Speed Pass Plus app and uh, contactless fill-up of your uh, of your vehicle. And then you can go inside and give yourself a fill-up. Or you can go next door. I don't think Ben would mind. You can go next door to the Oxford Crystal. Uh, they've got drive throughs open, deliveries open, Uber Eats, Grubhub, Waiter, all of that, they have the new Hangover Crystal. You might need that during the 4th of July weekend with fresh cracked eggs, bacon, egg, and cheese crystal. That's $1.69 each day. It's plenty hot outside. You can cool off with the new Peach Slushy, also the new Banana Pudding Shake. They've got the biscuits in the morning, bacon, egg, and cheese, sausage, egg, and cheese, scrambler breakfast bowl, and throughout the day, the Pick 5 for five fifty-five, which can include the new Nashville Hot Chick as part of your uh, five for five fifty-five. It's one hundred percent all white meat, chicken breast. There at the Oxford Crystal. I'm coming to you from the Clark Ford Studios. Clark Ford is in Amory, Mississippi. Six six two two five seven nineteen hundred is the number. Call it. Ask for Corey Clark. Tell Corey what Ford product you're looking for. He'll send you a quote within fifteen minutes in business hours. Right to the bottom line. No hassle. No haggle. You get your quote, and the rest is completely up to you. Uh, I recommend that you get your quote and hop into that Clark Ford. You will love the product. You'll love the service. Corey and the people at Clark Ford, they want to be your car guy. They want to be your truck guy. They'll prove that to you when you make the call. 662-257-1900. Dr. Michael Cunningham and all other guests join us on the Sardis. I'm sorry, on the Rafters Music and Food Hotline. Uh, Rafters uh, on on the lake. On the water is out at Sardis Lake. It's open right now, and they're having a big 4th of July weekend. Uh, Southern Beverage Company presents Red, White, and Boom on July the 4th. July 4th celebration at Sardis Lake. Great food, music, and fireworks. They open Friday at 11, Saturday and Sunday at 11 as well. They'll be serving up famous burgers, po'boys, and shrimp, along with your favorite cocktail specialties and ice-cold beer. The restaurant picnic area will also be open So bring your picnic blanket. Enjoy great food from the Rafters food truck. It's a perfect place 
for viewing the fireworks show on Saturday the 4th. At 11 a.m., they'll have the Performance Marine Poker Run with $1,000 in cash prizes, live rafters music on the water uh, all day. Uh, at 9 p.m., uh, the Ready Play will, will perform, and they'll have the Red, White, and Boom Fireworks Extravaganza. It'll be launched from the Spillway Dam, be viewable from Sardis Marina, Engineers Point, uh, the Beach Point, and also the Lower Lake Activity Center. It's the largest fireworks display in North Mississippi. The party's going to continue on a Sunday as well. The restaurant opens at 11 with uh, live music beginning at 4 p.m. All of that this weekend at Rafters on the Water at Sardis. So now we'll go to the Rafters Music and Food Hotline and Dr. Michael Cunningham. Enjoy. Dr. Michael Cunningham with us here. It is uh, Thursday night at uh, 6.08 Central Daylight Time. Uh, Doc, thanks for being with us. Hope you have a great 4th of July. Appreciate you spending some time. Oh, yeah, Neil. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, I, uh, I hope the 4th is great for everyone. So, uh, But appreciate you. appreciate you having me on again. I didn't see the uh, nightly news tonight. Uh, I was out running a couple of errands. I can only imagine what they led with. It is cases, 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 lots of cases. Cases are up. Um, and that's really where a lot of the media leaves it right there is cases are up. But let's start there. Cases are up. What does that mean? Yeah, cases are up. I, I mean, I think it's um, a twofold issue. Uh, I, I think they're, and I think it just depends on what state you're in as well uh, as what the main issue is. Um, one of the, one of the big issues is I've noticed, especially in the last week, is um, uh, it was brought to my attention that a lot of uh, migrant farm workers in various uh, states are being tested in massive numbers, and you can see that in Georgia uh, whenever they have, you know, 600 cases of non-residents. I mean, that's what they're measuring. Uh, that's where those cases come from. Uh, and I think California is a lot of that as well. Um, and then also there's a lot of cross-border. Uh, Mexico is kind of in the middle of their... Um, epidemic pandemic um and we're getting a lot of uh cases uh on the border uh a lot of the border counties in arizona texas and uh, california particularly arizona and california uh not so much new mexico um and you can see that with the case numbers in those border counties and the shift in the population to the hispanic uh uh, uh group um when you look at the cases that's where a ton of the new cases in many states, um, over 50, around 50 and over 50% of the cases are in Hispanic, the Hispanic population. Um, and that's just reflective of <clears throat> who they're testing and why. Um, these migrant workers, I mean, they live, they arrive in buses, they live in close quarters uh, with a bunch of people, and so it's not surprising that they're going to be a heavily positive group. Um, and, and, and rightfully so, they're targeted for testing. I mean, they need to be tested. It's not like that's a bad thing. Um, so, uh, but I think that that's really where a lot of it's going. And the cases are also reflective of just massive increases in testing. I mean, we've increased testing 300%, um, you know, in the last uh, few weeks. Um, and cases are up, I think, maybe, what, maybe 100%, uh, 85 to 100%. I didn't see today's numbers yet, so I, I don't know what today looked like. But um, that's, uh, I think that that's it in a nutshell. And uh, there's community spread as well. I mean, that's going to happen as people start moving more freely about. I think also in the south, a lot of the community spread is probably because it's so hot and people are inside in the air conditioner. 
Um, and uh, I think that um, air conditioning spread is probably um, under uh, appreciated as, as a mode of spread, especially if the virus is uh, spread by aerosolization, which I am more and more inclined to believe that it is. So. And, when, and when you say that, that means for, for people like me who went to ULM and aren't the smartest in the world, that means things like air conditioning units uh, pick, right. so picking it up droplet. and moving it around. Yeah, so there's droplets, which don't travel very far, um, and then there's aerosols, which can you know travel for a long way in the air. Um, and, you know, get into heating and air conditioning systems and, and things can get spread that way. Um, and I think if you look at a lot of the super spreader events, it's pretty clear that aerosolization is a problem. How much of it is a problem, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't think anybody knows that answer. Um, you know, uh, I, I don't think contact is as much of a spreader. I'm sure it, it has happened, but um, contact's not a big deal. It's, it's probably going to be some combination of droplet and aerosols, but if you look at all the super spreader events, so much of it's consistent with aerosol spread that I think that's probably the major mode of spread. <clears throat> but that being said, we've been studying influenza for, you know, decades and decades and decades, and we still don't know the major mode of spread of influenza. So, you know, it's, um, it's not an easy nut to crack as far as figuring out how it does its thing, uh, getting from one human being to another. To your point about the uh, migrant workers, since June the 9th, one-third of the entire pandemic has shifted into nine specific counties in the U.S. So That's right. Maricopa County in Arizona, Los Angeles County, Orange County, San Bernardino County, and Riverside County in California, uh, Miami-Dade, and Broward County, which is also down in South Florida, in Florida. And then in Texas, it is uh, Harris County, which is Houston, and Bexar County and my, my that's t- San Antonio. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, that that's uh this accounts for seventy two percent of today's US fatalities and seven percent of all global fatalities. So it's it's in very right. centralized places where the, the, the bulk of this is happening. Yeah, exactly. And um, I think yesterday those counties were ten percent of global fatalities. Um so, you know, it's, it's definitely a shift. But, I mean, the thing is, is that, you know, it's not, you know, this isn't some New York, New Jersey, or even Detroit type of situation. Um, it's, you know, just a ton of cases, but either, either it's probably a combination of the virus is less virulent and the population that it's infected is less susceptible. Uh, you know, I think it's probably a combination of both of those things. Here's a better stat, um, Here's a better stat Mike. I just found this. Uh, these nine counties that we just referenced make up the preponderance of the 324% rapid increase in reported cases. Uh, that, that's yeah, I mean, he, he, that's pretty astounding. Yeah, it's, that's incredible. Um, all right, so we talk about cases, and obviously in an ideal world there are no cases, but I always talk about ideal world and real world are two completely different things. So we talked about cases. When I look at this... And I think about, well, what's going to scare me? It would be if death counts rise, if death percentages rise, if uh, ICU admits jump, if vent uh, necessity jumps from, uh, I know you're driving right now, you can't sit and look at numbers, but from what you've gathered over the course of the last 24 hours or so, where are we in, in those categories? 
Yeah, I didn't see today's numbers. It wouldn't surprise me if all of those had jumped today, uh, hospitalizations. Uh, I don't think deaths did today compared to last week. I, I briefly saw 600 and some odd deaths today um, on something before I was uh, before I got in my car. <clears throat> so I think that deaths were either even or a little bit less than, than last week on the same day. So, and that's kind of, I think that's kind of what we would expect um, if the pandemic has shifted to a, you know, in the southern states um and we don't have this huge rapid you know rise in deaths like we saw in the northeast um which was an entirely different animal i mean i, I posted a graph on the site uh, yesterday or the day before where we have two pandemics in the united states you know we have area a and area b um, area a would be the northeast uh michigan indiana illinois uh the, so some of the midwest and, and the northeast and then you've got the rest of the country um, and if you look at the rest of the country, the death curve is, is flat. Um, and it's been that way for quite some time. And I think that just reflects the virus moving through the communities. Um, you know, shelter in place, uh, uh, I don't think shelter in place helped much, but I think just, you know, the social distancing probably helped some with that, uh, just kind of spreading it out over time, which is what you want to do. Um, and so <clears throat> I um, I think that um, the things that would, would be a a bother would be, you know, a rapid rise in deaths. I mean, even a little bit of a rise in a longer plateau isn't really a problem. I think that just reflects the the, the um, spread out nature of our country, um, and, and and there's really not another place that's like that that's had you know issues so far. When you look at Europe, I mean, a lot of the, the countries are a lot smaller and, and more concentrated. So I think when you 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 divide the U.S. up into the early pandemic and the later pandemic, I think it, it what we see makes sense right now as far as the deaths are kind of slowing down as far as the deceleration, and they're probably going to just kind of level off for a little while as the South and the West kind of go and the Southwest goes through its thing, um, and then they'll kind of just gradually uh, trend down again. That's my sense of what's starting to happen. Um, but again, if ICU and ventilator usage don't get crazy, the, the deaths aren't going to go up. I mean, you've, you've got to have sick patients for people to die. And, um, without, even with hospitalizations being a lot higher, you know, there is some incentive for hospitals to admit people. Um, you know, they're getting paid more for a COVID-19 diagnosis. Um, I don't know how much of that's playing a role. There's also people being admitted to the hospital for routine procedures, and they're getting tested, and then they're positive. And when I say a routine procedure, I mean somebody comes into the emergency room and they need their gallbladder taken out. It's not, I don't mean somebody who shows up for an elective procedure and then tests positive. They're usually not going to put that patient in the hospital. They're going to send them home for quarantine for a couple of weeks. I'm talking about people who show up at the hospital for a acute problem, they get diagnosed with their acute problem. They come in the hospital. Most hospitals are testing everyone. I know all of, every hospital locally is testing everyone who comes in. Um, and if you're positive, you know, they may or may not do your surgery. You may wait. You may sit there for a while. So all those things could, could lead to a rise in hospitalizations without a crazy rise in deaths or ICU stays or ventilator usage. And so I think, um, you know, I've documented this divergence between hospitalization and ventilator usage and ICU usage for a while. That's been going on for at least two to three weeks. Um, and so and I think that's reflective of the less virulent disease, more people being tested that show up to the hospital, uh, being counted as a hospitalization, but not necessarily there for COVID-19. You know, they just happen to have it at the same time. 
Yeah, it's the people that that go to the hospital because they have to have their appendix out, or they're having, right. you know, like you said, anything. I mean, whatever the whatever the case may be, and those sometimes those people are, are asymptomatic, I guess, and they test positive and they become a COVID patient when in reality they they probably wouldn't have been there otherwise. You know, and we've seen a little rise in hospitalizations here, but the acuity. That's the thing that everybody notices. The acuity is just not what it was. Uh, in April, I mean, all, you know, we had a ton of patients in the ICU. Um, and, I mean, we had a ton of patients on the floor, too. But, you know, now we've got, quite a, we've got a few patients on the floor, and we've got, I think, one patient in the ICU. Um, whereas before, you would have had about, you know, 10 or 20% of your patients in the ICU, and now I would say it's, it's way less than that. It's, I mean, we've got one out of, you know, 15 patients or something that's in the ICU. So it's just the acuity is much less. And when I talk to colleagues, um, say, in Hattiesburg and other places, I mean, they, they say the same thing. It's just, it just doesn't seem to be as bad. And whether that's the population is healthier and the virus has already taken out the really unhealthy people it was going to take out anyway early on, um, I, you know, all that stuff's playing a role. I, I just, I don't see how we get to April again with what we're seeing today. I don't, I don't think that's possible. I don't think it happens. And um, people who think that's going to happen, they, they aren't, they aren't looking at the right numbers if they think that's going to happen. Um, and so, to me, that's encouraging. I mean, I, I think everybody should take encouragement in that fact that we do have rising hospitalizations, a little bit of ICU, a little bit of ventilator. But for the most part, the hospitals can handle it. Uh, we're used to handling high volumes of cases. We're used to our ICUs being full. That's not new. It happens all the time, year-round in most hospitals. And we, we've had plenty of time to prepare for it. I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit because I'm curious to get your thoughts. There's been a shift in attitude, I think, from uh, Dobbs in Jackson, who is going to play a very big role in what happens with schools. He and UMMC is going to play a very big role in what happens with colleges, potentially with what happens with uh, things like high school football, college football. Why Why is that shift? His comments, I can't remember the name of the publication. It wasn't Mississippi Today. Mississippi Free Press, I think. His comments about guaranteeing that the hospitals would be overwhelmed in Mississippi, where did, where did that come from, in your opinion? I don't know. Uh, I mean... I mean, unless he's just focused on cases. I mean, uh, you know, we've had, uh, the thing is, is that if you look at the data from Mississippi, I mean, the hospital, the ICU has been just rock solid stable for weeks. I mean, the whole month of June, I mean, it was just the same, I mean, almost, it was like a straight line all the way across. And some people will say, well, that's bad, it's not going down, but the whole time the hospitalizations were going up, especially for the last two weeks of June, the hospitalizations went up uh, every, almost every day. And um, some, there's some weekend lag here and there that, that, that contributes to some of that. But, um, you know, I, I don't know where he gets that from. I mean, you know, the only way I think that that could happen is if there's some second nursing home wave. I mean, I, I, because those are the people that are dying from this. Uh, in, in, you know, in almost every state, it's at least half of the patients that die are in nursing homes or long-term care centers. So unless we have some overwhelming uh, nursing home debacle, uh, that that shouldn't happen. I don't see how it could happen. Um, and he would have to show me some data 
for me to understand where he's coming from there. He may have access to something that I don't, uh, but if, if he does, he should be sharing it. Um, and he shouldn't be making statements like that without telling us why. Um, you know, why do you believe that? And I haven't heard that from him. Uh, you know, we, we get these numbers and we get, you know, uh, the, the, I don't, I don't know what to call, to call it other than the, the, the kind of fear inducing statements, but we don't get the why behind it other than cases are up. Um, and so I just, you know, that to me isn't a justification for a statement like that. And, and you know, I think Dobbs is doing the best he can. I think, I, I don't, I don't know that there's, I don't think there's any malice. I don't think there's any malintent. I don't think there's anything like that. I just think that, you know, he, he, he needs to, I don't, I don't know who he's talking to in like the local hospitals, whether it's CEOs or local doctors or, or what, but I, I just think that there needs to be better communication and with, with us as far as, um, that goes. And, and, and he does do, um, a weekly, one hour thing that's at an absolutely awful time for me and I've never been able to join in. Uh, but I just wish that there was, um, if there's some reason he believes that, I wish he would share why. Um, because I, I don't, I don't, other than cases, I can't see it yet. The Oxford Exxon Podcast also brought to you by the Iron Horse Grill. Iron Horse Grill located at 320 East Pearl Street in Jackson. Live music four times per week. The perfect place to enjoy lunch, dinner, or Sunday brunch. It's also one of the largest beverage caterers in Mississippi. It can service the entire state. So call Sarah Black at 601-398-0151 for your catering needs. Knock that off your worry list. Let the Iron Horse Grill make your event one that is memorable forever. Dead Soxy discounts are back. While some prices may have risen on the website, the MPW Digital Network podcast and Rebel Grove subscribers will always have access to the best Dead Soxy discounts available. So use promo code REBELGROVE at checkout. Get 30% off the best dress socks you'll ever put on. If you were on the fence about getting your kids a pair of the limited edition socks, use promo code REBELGROVE. Get a pair for you and your child. They'll love them. You will too for under 5 bucks. De- shutdown deals with a promo code combination are available in select styles. So go to deadsoxy.com and make your day a soxy one. Our friends from Blue Delta Jeans are excited to announce that on October the 16th, the Friday before the Florida game, Blue Delta Jeans will be hosting the second annual Delta Cup Golf Tournament. Oxford Exxon listeners may remember that last year's Delta Cup was taken home by Chase Parham and company, so this year's Delta Cup will be your opportunity to challenge the reigning victors. Tea time will be at 10 a.m. at Mossy Oak Golf Club, and your registration fee will include green and cart fees, food and drinks on the course, as well as a pair of a new pair of Blue Delta Jeans. Prizes will be up for grabs for hole-in-ones, Closest to the pin and longest drive. The field's going to be limited to 18 teams, so don't wait. Email Tyler, that's T-Y-L-E-R, at BlueDeltaJeans.com to reserve your spot, and they'll see you on the course. We have a amount of my money up uh, from taped earlier this week with Romero Miller. That is brought to you by Pinnacle Trust, Pinnacle Trust based in Madison, Mississippi. They've got clients in more than 20 states, advisors in multiple states as well. Founded in 1997, Pinnacle Trust provides detailed, specialized investment management, financial planning, retirement planning for individuals and businesses, and much more. They treat investing like a commodity. Decisions are made using objective information and research, not emotions. So regardless of your level of wealth, Pinnacle Trust will sit down with you, listen to your goals, study your expenses, and put forth a comprehensive, detailed financial and retirement plan built just for you at Pinnacle Trust. Uh, 
They go the extra mile just for you. And all you got to do is tell them that you heard about Pinnacle Trust on the podcast. You'll get 10% off your first year's fees. We're also brought to you by John Edwards of Regency Travel Incorporated in Memphis. Thinking about getting away after four months of uh, lockdown, pandemic lockdown. John knows where all the deals are. He knows what's open, what's kind of open, what's closed. He knows uh, all that because he's part of Virtuoso. It's a worldwide network of travel partners that allows John to supply his clients with added values, unique benefits, simply not available to other travelers. Get in touch with him. Give him some parameters. Give him a budget. And he will give you options you can't find on your own. And you don't have to live in or near Memphis to take advantage of his services. 901-494-3387 or send him an email. Edwards at regencytravel.net. First time clients can save $50 off their first book trip just by telling John you heard about Regency Travel on the podcast. We're also brought to you by Grenada Nissan. If you're in the market for a Nissan vehicle, Grenada Nissan's the place to go. They've got a complete selection of new and previously owned Nissan vehicles. Great lease deals as well. It's just off Interstate 55 in Grenada, GrenadaNissanUSA.com. And we're brought to you by Oxford University Bank. OUB, locally owned and operated right here in Oxford. When you deposit money at OUB, that money and the vast majority of the bank's profits go right back into the Oxford community. OUB offers its customers the absolute best cash checking account. It's called Casasa, and with Casasa, OUB will pay customers 2.5% interest on their balances, up to $50,000, and refund ATM fees nationwide. To learn more about OUB, check out liveoxfordbankoxford.com or call 662 634-6668. OUB is FDIC insured. And we're brought to you by Bluff City Advisory Group, dedicated to building the future you desire. Founded in Memphis in 2019, their team is comprised of established and seasoned financial experts who came together to serve individuals and families of their beloved hometown. You can get in touch with them at 901-365-3447 or email ben, B-E-N, at bluffcityadvisory.com. And we're brought to you by the law firm of Bain, Moss, and Bowen, PLLC, located in historic downtown Corinth. Their firm practices a wider range of law, from DUI defense to car wrecks to representing government entities. It's the only firm in Mississippi made up of a sitting state legislator, a former assistant district attorney, and a former circuit judge. Their experience is unmatched, and you can tap into that experience by seeing them at 618 East Walden Street in Tupelo or by calling them at 662 287 1620. Let's talk about schools. We're going to jump around. I want to make sure I hit the things that I know people out there want us to hit. You do a fantastic job every morning with with the numbers. And quite frankly, sometimes the, the numbers are so good. When I say that, I mean, they're so detailed from people like you and ethical skeptic on Twitter that it just what all it shows to people like me is that we don't really understand what it is that we're reading, perhaps. But so I, so I want to get I want to get your thoughts on a couple of, of hot-button topics that are out there. The first first one that comes up is, believe it or not, not football. It's the return of, of school. We are uh, It's July the 2nd as we tape this. We're going into the, the 4th of July weekend. We are about a month away, a little more than a month away from when kids in Mississippi normally go back to school, whether it's uh, all the K-12 through stuff. They go back around August the 10th or so and kind of hit it and uh, and get started. Not everyone in the state has committed to uh, on-campus on-campus learning, in-school learning. Uh, there's uh, quite a debate about it going on. There's a debate here in Oxford, and you're a medical person. I know what you're going to say here. Make 
make the case. Uh, I, I know you're for the kids going back to school. What's the case for the kids going back to school? Well, the, the young, the under 18, there, there shouldn't even be a debate. Um, I mean, uh, I think it's 12, 13 European countries now opened up schools with no change in case numbers at all uh, for the past uh, two to three. Which, I think it's been a month. Some have been open for a month uh, with no change in cases at all. Uh, Spain, Italy, Sweden, Switzerland, uh, I think Austria. I mean, just a ton of uh, countries in Europe have opened schools, and they've seen zero change in their uh, in their incidence of uh, the disease. So I, I just opening schools is just not a problem. We know from every single study done to date, kids don't have the same viral load. Contact trace data shows that they do not spread the disease, uh, that the adults are the ones that give them the disease. Uh, they don't spread it amongst themselves. They don't spread it to adults. Um, and so somebody would really need to make the case to me of why we should, we should not open schools because everything we know about this virus um, that we've learned in the last four months is that kids are at almost zero risk of transmitting the virus, at zero risk of dying from the virus, and almost zero risk of getting even very sick. Um, I mean, I, I want to say it's 10 or 20 times the number of kids have died from influenza this year versus the coronavirus. So, you know, that those numbers all tell you what you need to know is that open the schools. I mean, they should be open. Um, and if you if you want to if you want to um, if you want to talk about colleges, that, that that may be a little bit different. But as far as as far as young kids go, there there is there is in my mind there is zero debate. The school should be open, fully functioning, uh, in August. I, I don't think anybody can make an argument the other way around. If they're trying to do that, they don't. They haven't read. They haven't read enough. Are there any young people? And when I say this, I mean K through twelve. That because of some. I think what's the word comorbidity, whether it's obesity or whether there's some underlying health condition should, should be more careful than the typical healthy 11, 12 year old I mean, kid. There may be, but I mean, the question is how are they going to get it? They would have to get it from a teacher. Um, but the thing is, is they're more likely to get it from their parents. So I, to me, they're safer at school. Uh, I mean, you know, cause these, the, it, it transmits in the home. That's the number one place where you're going to get this virus is in your house. You're going to get it from your sister, your brother, your mom, your dad, if you live with grandma, grandpa, whomever. You're going to get it from an adult that's in your house. You're, you're, you know, that's, that's how it's transmitted by far and away. Um, and, go, you know, opening schools isn't going to change that at all. Um, if, if schools were major vectors, we would have known that a long time ago because this virus has been here much longer than we thought. And, you know, looking back, we can't identify any, um, you know, K through 12 cluster events. They, they just, they're just not there. Um, we can identify college cluster events now, but that's, that's now, not back then. But, um, I think that, I think the argument for K through 12 is pretty open and shut. Uh, but the, people, but, but the college cluster events, Mike, are not, quote college cluster events right they're they're a group of college kids that got together and had a party and they shared a vape or they shared a bong or they shared a joint or they shared playstation or xbox controllers or they shared cards 
uh, or, or right. What, what? I, I mean, I was gonna get, I was gonna get to that, but I was just, I was just meaning by age. Okay. I see, uh, I, yeah, I see but no, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. I think there's zero. I think there's almost zero risk for kids in a classroom to contract a virus. I mean, how are they gonna get it? You know, it's not like they're in there yelling and screaming and well, at least I, they didn't when I went to college. Uh, but, I mean, you know, that's how you get it. you got to sit there and have conversations for 15, 20, 30 minutes, develop an aerosol in the air, and somebody inhales it, or get a droplet or two in your eye. I mean, that's how you get it, uh, or at least we think. And so you can't get that from getting instruction in a classroom from a teacher that's, you know, at the bottom of an auditorium, you know, 200 feet away. I just, or 100 feet away, I just don't, I, it just, it just, it can't happen to a large degree. Sure, could, you know, one 19-year-old give it to another 20-year-old in the classroom sitting there? I mean, they could, sure. But it's just not going to happen on a massive scale. And that's what you, that's what you don't want to, that's what you're trying to prevent. You're trying to prevent massive scale transmission. Um, and, and, you know, with all due respect to everyone in the United States who put us in this position, Sweden did it right. And they stopped events that, that, that would cause mass transmission. And they are going to wind up doing as well or better than anybody. Um, so I, I just I, I don't think I, I don't think there's any argument K through 12. You can make a little bit of argument for college, but again, college kids. When you look at the under 25, they're still more likely to be struck by lightning than die from this. You, I think you just answered my question. It's it's one of the it's interesting. Remind me to go back to the college thing. I want to let's 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 finish up the the grade school conversation, and then let's go to the college thing because that's going to lead into college sports and, and that conversation. There's a lot of talk about K through 12 when they go to school that they have to change the way that they do the cafeteria. They have to change the the way that maybe they they move in the in the hallways. And then there's a lot of talk, and I, I'm not trying to get controversial about this for the people out there. They're like, oh, God, here he goes. The mask conversation. <laughs> <laughs> and, and look, I'm on record here. I've worn a mask. I live in a town where you have to wear a mask to go any place. I, I went to get pool salt today. I went to, uh, I went to the wine store today. If, to go into either one of those places and, and make those transactions, a mask is required. So I put one on and I, I whatever, it's fine. What I, I, It's fine, whatever, I don't care. I do question how necessary it is for middle school kids or elementary school kids to wear a mask all day at school. That's just dumb. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, I'm just going to tell you, that's just dumb. You know, I mean, they already don't spread it. Why? Why do they need to wear a mask? You know, I mean, because now we're just screw, we're screwing with their immune systems now, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, why? I mean, somebody's got to explain to me why. If we already know they don't transmit it, why would you need to wear a mask in the first place if you're not transmitting the virus? I mean, it just it makes zero sense for kids to wear masks. I mean, absolutely zero. Okay, I'm, I'm gonna I, I, I'm gonna, I gonna play even. I'm gonna play devil's advocate, not because it's what I believe, because you and I've had this conversation, but I can hear people out there, based on my Twitter feed, which is is fascinating. I can hear people out there. Well, it's to protect the teacher. It's to protect the cafeteria worker. It's to protect the assistant principal. It's to protect the PE coach. It's to protect the adults in in. But the kids the don't give it to them either. The kids don't give it to them either. All the contract trace data shows that kids don't give it to adults. The adults give it to the kids. So 
that doesn't make any sense. I mean, if you want to have the adults wear a mask, fine, make them wear a mask. But the kids shouldn't be wearing a mask. I mean, it just, it's beyond dumb. I mean, you look at the Netherlands contact trace data. I mean, thousands and thousands of contact trace and zero, zero kids under the 18 and under gave this to somebody else in their data. Zero. I mean, it's, it's not even, it's not even debatable that kids transmit this virus to a significant degree. So why would they have to wear a mask? I mean, you know, it just, it doesn't make any sense. I, I, and, you know, and, and, if, and if the things aerosol spread, masks don't work anyway. You know, but that's another conversation. Um, you know, I, I just, it, it, we're making kids wear masks. I mean, beyond the immune system stuff and, you know, all the, you know, arguments about hypoxia and whatever, I mean, that's, that's irrelevant to me because you already know that the kids aren't vectors. So why do they need to wear a mask? You know, that, that's the whole point. If, if they can't transmit the virus to an effective degree, there's no reason for them to wear a mask in the first place. Tennessee High School Association, Tennessee High School Athletic Association, I should say, THSAA announced uh, they're pushing the start of the school year back. They announced that they're pushing the start of sports back, if they're even going to have them at all. Um. I mean, this is, we're talking about high school football. We're talking about high school, I guess, I don't know. I don't know what sports are played in the fall at the high school level. Uh, basketball happens pretty quickly in the fall at the high school level. Um, is this just people trying to be, uh, what, in your, in your mind, what is this? Are, are those, are those smart decisions? I, I hear rumors about this happening in Mississippi too. That high school football is not going to happen until much later, if it happens at all. They're talking about waiting until the spring. All of those kind of things. Uh, it's got to be a legal decision. That's the only thing I can think of. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if they're just concerned about liability. I, I don't know. I, I don't understand why you would do that. I, I just, you know, I mean, it's like it. No, miss. Like, don't they have to like clean the change the footballs and stuff? I mean, it's. The stuff that they're doing to try to prevent transmission, it doesn't even make any sense. I just, I, I don't want, uh, you know, somebody has to show me one person, whoever, uh, we don't know in the contract trace data, we don't know of anyone that may, there might be, there might be a couple of people who've gotten this by, you know, casual contact. Um, but that's still, that's the, even that's sketchy uh, when you look at the details. And so um, I, you, someone would have to, make a case to me for that based upon the fact that the kids don't transmit the virus and they don't get sick. And when they do get sick, it's very, very mild. So why would you stop football? Uh, you know, that, that's the question I, I would have for them. If we, if we know all these facts, then explain to me why you're stopping football uh, or whatever sports you want to throw in there. Um, because, I mean, these kids are going to be out on the field sweating, huffing, and puffing. Yeah, but, but again, I mean, they, they're not transmitters. So what what is the point of delaying a season? I mean, the, the worst part of the year for the coronavirus that we had in the United States was in the spring. Why would you move it to the spring? You know, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of stuff that, that, that people are saying and doing that I just, I can't, I, I really logically can't wrap my head around. Uh, and I think a lot of it's just fear uh, of the unknown, uh, or just plain fear. And I think, I think from a from a state perspective, 
it, it's probably got to be some liability involved with that, would be my guess. Um, I'm sure they've got lawyers left and right that are giving them advice about that. Um, I mean, I know, I know churches in Mississippi did that a lot. They got, they got advice from, they got legal advice, uh, to, about, you know, reopening and, and singing and stuff like that. So, um, I, I would guess that that's playing a role in that. Um, I mean, do you take the, do you take the I, school I choir? Do you take the school choir outside? Do you are, are are kids safe on school buses? I'm just trying to. Think I think of, kids are. I think kids are safe no matter what. Okay. I think I think the data on that's very clear. Uh, I, I can't. I don't know what the number is, but I, I want to say we still have maybe under it's under 25. I think the deaths are it's still like less than 30 in the United States. I think um, it's such a small number and almost. Every single one of those had some very severe underlying condition. Uh, a lot of them, a lot of them had heart conditions underlying. In Mississippi, for the month of June, for people under thirty, let's well, let's stay on, let's stay on the on, on path for people zero to seventeen, so seventeen and under, which high school seniors and under, one thousand four hundred thirty-eight new cases. Twelve of those required hospitalization. 12 of 1,438. I'll let you all do the math. Uh, zero died. Right. Exactly. So, uh, it's, you know, and if you, and if you, if you do that with influenza, it's going to, it's going to dwarf that hospitalization number. And it's going to dwarf, and obviously it's going to dwarf the death number. So, um, you know, it, it 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 just doesn't it just doesn't hold water. The arguments to not have school do not hold water. They they are unsubstantiated and uh, illogical. That's the nicest way I can put it. All right, let's switch to college. College kids, uh, they've been they they've been out of college since since March. We shut everything down. No summer schools on campus. Uh, they are most of them are are. are talking about getting back into school though there is a a tremendous amount of fear from the school standpoint uh, across the board i saw where usc southern california announced i think it was yesterday maybe it was today that they were uh going almost exclusively online for the fall semester i saw where yale is going to have uh freshmen in this in the in the in this uh, fall semester and then they'll go home and then the sophomores will come for the spring semester so everyone's being super careful i've heard rumors about ole miss as the way they're going to try to socially distance the dorms so let's talk about dorms high-rise dorms all over the country uh the the stockard martin are, are famous at ole miss among ole miss people my daughter went to one at arkansas she was at in reed hall which i think is nine ten floors uh, I know we had we had multiple dorm tragedies throughout the country last year, where this thing just wiped out nineteen and twenty year olds across the board. Um, I'm kidding. I'm going to say when. <laughs> yeah, well, there was the one at uh, you know that school, and and um, yeah, it was just really bad. And and I'm kidding. It, there was nothing. It, it's what blows me away now that we have a chance to think about it is as it pertains to college. This thing was on college campuses. Presumably, at probably in January, but I'll give the benefit of the doubt and say February, early March, coronavirus was in the country, and kids were in dorms, and kids were in classrooms, and when I say kids, I mean college kids, and they right. probably had parties, 
and they uh, they probably you know hooked up and did things that college kids do, and yet it, there were no there were no massive breakouts on college campuses, and so there ought to be a certain degree of comfort in that. Yet there doesn't appear to be because everyone is is literally terrified going forward. So I'll ask you: is is if you're someone out there and they're about to send their college kid, you know, their college freshman or college sophomore to college and they're going to be staying in a dorm or a sorority house or a fraternity house, is is it safe? Um, I mean, I'd let my kid do it. Um, I mean, that, that's, that's, I guess I can say that. Um, I, like you said, I mean, it's been, it's been here since January, at least at the, at the, at the, at the latest. Uh, it's been here since January. Uh, we know that from data in Ohio and California. So, I, um, and actually, if you look at, if you look at sewage water assessment that we've been seeing, it's been, it's been around the globe for a while. Uh, but I think, um, yes, I, I have no problem with kids in dorms and fraternity houses and sorority houses because, like you said, I mean, it's been here for a while. There were no outbreaks. The only difference between now and January and February is testing. We have the test to check for it. That's the only reason we know about the, Party at Ole, what was it? The party at Ole Miss, where you know some people got infected, some, uh, a bunch of young kids, um, and and you'd, you'd have never known that in January or February because we weren't tested for it. You know, you would assume some kid got sick, got ill from you know whatever, and you know everybody else remains asymptomatic or maybe gets the sniffles. <clears throat> and so that that's the difference between then and now is that we're testing for it. You know, the the the, the fear today. It's, it's based upon testing. It's not based upon reality. Uh, reality. The reality is, is that we weren't testing then, and we are now, and we're testing massively now. I mean, it's quite impressive how many tests the United States is doing a day now. Um, and so, you know, if we were doing that amount of testing in February and March, we'd have seen that. We probably would have seen the same thing. Um, you know, we were just getting the tip of the iceberg when we started testing in, in March. So, you know, I mean, what the CDC estimated 10 times the number, it's probably, it's way higher than that. They're, they're wrong. They've been wrong about everything. So uh, it's way more than 10 times the number of infections. It's probably closer to 20. Uh, but, no, I have no problem with uh, kids being in dorms. Um, I have no problem with kids being in sorority and fraternity houses. They're going to get it. Um, they're going to have it. But they're going to do well um, almost Certainly, every single one of them will do fine. I mean, their mortality rate's going to be point zero. I think the last calculation for under 25, the mortality rate is point zero zero eight percent. I mean, that's. I mean, it, that's not even. It's not even measurable. Um, so I, I just. A far greater chance that they die. I would let let my kid go with no restrictions. A far greater chance they die in a car accident or a... Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about college football. It's coming up. Kids are on campus. Listen, this is not hyperbolic. I've talked to college coaches. I've talked to people who have talked to college coaches. There is a, a real pessimism right now that's becoming pervasive and I think a lot of it is media driven. Honestly, there's this, there is a, uh, there's a lot of liability concerns on the part of of university people. There is uh, 
there's just a real concern about the ability to get through a season without you know a bunch of breakouts on these on these teams yet just today and I'm using Brett McMurphy of uh, of Stadium Network and uh, Brett's a good reporter he really is Brett, he told he said Michigan tested 322 student athletes and coaches slash staff for COVID and they have two positive tests two out of 322. Michigan State conducted 41 student-athlete tests on Monday, and none tested positive. So zero for 41 in East Lansing. Uh, Boston College tested 93 football student-athletes, had one test positive, one out of 93. Um, Minnesota, the University of Minnesota, Department of Athletics conducted 170 COVID-19 tests uh, during uh, June, so conducted 170 during during uh, June. Seven student athletes from multiple sports tested positive. So seven out of 170. Brett says that's four percent. I'll take his word for it. I'm math's not my uh, my strong suit. Uh, I'm looking to see what the other one was. Seems like there was one more, but I think that's the point. Those are all. Here's one more. Uh, OSU, which I think, Oklahoma State. Oklahoma State tested 110 football players, uh, multiple tests per per player, and had a total of 14 positives. Only one student athlete remains as an active case, and he is in quarantine. To me, those are all really good numbers, really good signs that that we're, we're going to be okay. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I would have thought it actually would have been a little bit higher, honestly, than those numbers. Um, so I, I think that those are excellent numbers, and if anybody's surprised by those, don't be. I mean, that those are those are really low percentages. Um, here's, and- here's another one, not to interrupt you, but Maryland, University of Maryland, uh, they had uh, 105 student athletes tested, none tested positive, zero out of 105. And don't forget, those are hard hit area. Michigan was a hard hit area. Maryland was a hard hit area. Boston, I mean, th- those areas were hit really hard as uh, from a from a mortality perspective and a number of cases perspective, I mean, those places, those places got hit really hard. So if you're getting low prevalences slash incidents, however you're going to define it there, um, if you're getting low incidents in, in the areas that were hard hit, I think it bodes really well for the nation as a whole. Um, and, you know, I, you know, surprises me a little. I thought it would be a little more than that, to be honest with you. Uh, but I know Ole Miss was pretty similar, I think, right? It was just a couple, uh, one coach and a couple of students or something. Yeah, they've had more than that since then. They had a, a they had a baseball outbreak. I don't know the exact numbers, but it was it was a pretty it was a pretty strong number. And I've heard stories about how it happened. And it's uh, kids will be kids. They they, <laughs> they 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 were not probably probably practicing hygiene the way that that you would hope that 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 they would. Um, I don't mean that in a bad, nothing, anything stupid. They're just being kids, you know. They, they, yeah. uh, they, they were sharing the same. So one kid had it, and he was at this get together. I don't even call it a party. I don't know what it was. They college kids get together, and they were playing Xbox or PlayStation or whatnot. And so they're all sharing the same controller, and I'm sure that there was probably some beer there, and there might have been a one of those bong things that they all share and and you know again college 
kids do college things. There was a there was a Sigma Chi rush party on on I don't know if it was on campus, but it was in Oxford, where they were a lot of them were sharing the same vape, and there was supposedly a beer bong there, and I think it was indoors, so there was probably some, like you said aerosol that was going, you know, just that they had a lot of yep. there were some athletes. I can't say this with any degree of complete veracity, complete confirmation, but I think there were a couple of football players that um, contracted it there. Best I can tell. I think you, you said a statement in there. Kids will be kids. You know, I think to me that's that's the worst thing that we've done is that we've stopped letting kids be kids through this whole thing. Um, you know, they can't play, they can't go to school, they can't play sports, they can't. I mean, it's just the laundry list of what we've done to our kids. Is um is kind of it's 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 disheartening. It's totally yeah. It, it, it completely disheartening, and at this point in time, with what we know, completely unnecessary now. Um, There's and I, I think that I think kids should be in school. I think kids should be in college. I think sports should resume. I mean, take Iowa for example. Look at Iowa, a state that did not lock down at all. They they had some local you know uh, 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 orders, but from a state perspective, they did not lock down. Um, they just, they're almost like a Swede model, uh, probably a little bit more than that, but almost like a Swede model there. In the month of June, they had over a thousand softball and baseball games in the month of June. In high school. Look at, uh, 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 well, a little, I don't know if it's high school, Little League and, um, uh, you know, Dixie Youth and all that. Uh, a thousand baseball games and softball games in that state last month. Look at their cases today. Nothing. Not a single thing changed. So, you know, you look at stuff like that and, you know, people need to understand the, the small risk that's involved with activities like that, uh, the small risk that's in, I mean, just infinitesimally small risk to kids, um, especially 18 and under. Um, and it, it just, it, it's so I just, disheartening is the only word I can come up with. It just, what we've done to them from a men- mental perspective, uh, and, and just a, a lack of social interaction perspective, I think is it, it may weigh heavily on them for a while, if not their whole life. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I see the anxiety among high school kids. My, yeah, my, I see it in my daughter. This anxiety about we're going to get to go back, right? We're going to I'm going to get to go see my friends. I get to go participate in Rush. I, I want to do these things that I've looked forward to. And to me, that's completely natural. Yeah. And when, when when I hear adults do the well, you know, sometimes we have to sacrifice. I'm going to go shut up, man. I mean, yeah, you know, I mean, of, of course, kids look forward to their senior year of high school. Kids look forward to, you know, getting to play baseball or basketball or or golf or be in the band or and 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 you know, not to be repetitive on a podcast that I had with Austin Barber yesterday, but you know. For a lot of those kids, not just about not just athletes, just kids. A lot of kids. That's you know, high school's kind of you know, like the, the maybe there's a kid who's in into drama and they figure that out. They they they're involved in the school plays and that's where they find their friend group and that's where they find their sense of belonging and and that kind of thing. And that's important, you know. I mean, not everybody can be the quarterback. Not everybody. Right. Not everybody can be uh, DK Metcalf. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. 
but you know the kid who's in the in the band and he he becomes the the number one what do they call it the number one chair and in the trombone or whatever and and that gives him kind of a, a little something to puff his chest out about or the kid that gets into ROTC and kind of finds his home I mean all of the to me all of that that's that's the kind of part of the value of high school to me I mean I'm not trying to be idealistic here it just it just kind of is I mean that's what you you want you want kids to sort of find their thing whatever that thing is and you can't find their thing on a zoom class yes I, I agree I mean if you look at the the mental health statistics of the nation as a whole are terrible and it's affecting kids as bad maybe worse in some situations than the adults uh, and so I you know the, me- the mental health aspect of this has been completely discounted, and it is going to take a serious toll uh, on a lot of people. Uh, you know, I mean, suicides are up, homicides are up, child abuse, spousal abuse is up. Uh, you know, overdoses. Uh, I think I posted a little thing in Cook County. Overdoses are up forty percent over forty uh, percent um, in three months. I think it was. Um, you know, just it, it, the, the things like that that have just been ignored because people. We're looking to these "quote unquote" public health experts. Well, you can't ignore every other aspect of public health just because there's some respiratory virus around. You know, public health is more than just an infection. Uh, it, it's everything involved in public health, including the mental health uh, of the community. And I, I just, I think that you know, I've posted this many times. It's the best analogy I can give. The public health officials are standing behind the COVID-19 tree, and the rest of the forest is burning down because they can't, and they can't see it. They just can't see it. They're focused on one thing, and they're ignoring every single other problem. And it is, it is maddening to me. I don't think uh, at least Mississippi State's already made this announcement. I think at Ole Miss that decision has basically been made. They haven't announced it yet. They would probably argue with me right now, but. I'll stand by what I'm about to say. I don't think, I don't think the Grove is going to be open for tailgating. I don't think on-campus tailgating is going to be allowed. Um, at both of those schools, at just like every other SEC school, they are waiting to make decisions about uh, attendance at football games, assuming that there is a season. Uh, I'm hearing that you know, kind of Ole Miss is building their entire model off of a, and Keith Carter basically confirmed this on the podcast off a 50 percent capacity um these are outdoor stadiums in startville and oxford and tuscaloosa and auburn and fayetteville and baton rouge and college station i'll just take the seven sec west teams and we'll just leave it there those are outdoor stadiums does it does it make sense in your in your mind to limit attendance eliminate attendance what's what's kind of your thoughts there um I don't mind the plan. I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I don't mind the plan. I, I would say for the outdoor seating areas, you could. Def, I, I, my plan would be to have more people than that. I think fifty percent is kind of dumb outside. Um, you know, I, because we again contact trace data outdoors super spreader events. Ninety-seven percent of them are inside. Three percent are combo indoors, outdoors, and so you don't really know. But most likely, those 3% are probably indoors as well. So, you know, it's an indoor disease. Everybody needs to understand that. This is an indoor disease. It is spread indoors. So if it was me, I would have attendance outside much higher than that, maybe 75%. Um, that would be my plan going in, depending on just w- watching things, you know. And, and that could change as time goes on. You know, if things got better, and 
you know, it kind of, you know, dies off like it has in several other countries, then maybe you change that to normal. Uh, but uh, the inside, you could definitely make an argument for inside. I mean, I, I have tickets in the South Club. That place gets really crowded. And there's a lot of people yelling and screaming and talking and, you know, so, um, I, I could definitely see the indoor aspect of that. That it makes a little bit of sense, uh, to me. And again, if it's still a problem in, you know, what, two months now we got to go? Um, yeah. So, a little over two months. Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot can change in two months. And here's the thing. I think a lot of this is based upon this whole second wave theory um, that things are going to get worse in the fall. That was one of my questions coming up. If we hear a lot about there's going to be a second wave, I guarantee a second wave, there's absolutely going to be a second wave. Those are comments that I hear medical people make. Not, I mean, I love to make fun of my field because we're a collection of idiots. But these are comments that have been made from medical people. Yeah medical people that don't study enough so um I, my my comments on that would be those the people that are making those comments number one they need to read more um because if you if you i mean there's two types of immunity everybody keeps talking about antibodies okay the immune system is very complicated I, i've got a biochemistry background I, I i know i know a lot about the immune system uh from just you know before even before med school and so you know, the immune system is complicated, but there's two major kinds. There's antibody-mediated and there's, there's cell-mediated. So antibody would be humoral, uh, cell-mediated, T-cell-mediated, whatever you want to call it. Um, and then there's, it, there's a lot of interaction between those two as well. And so antibodies are one aspect of this. The, the more important aspect has been noticed in the last two months. There have been several studies. Several well-done studies, by the way, not crap studies like we've gotten a lot. Several well-done studies, in particular the most recent one that was published last week, that showed that 81% of people in the study had T-cell-mediated innate immunity to this virus because of cross-reactivity to common cold viruses. So they've been infected their whole lives with common cold viruses, and that has given them T-cell-mediated immunity to this virus. And it would explain a whole lot. Now, 81% seems like a high number, but if you look at Michael Levitt, the Nobel laureate who studied this probably more than anybody um, at all, in all the countries, he was boots on the ground in China when it started. Uh, this guy knows more about the, the curves and the way this, this epidemic rises and falls in every country than anybody else in the world. I would, I would bet a lot of money on that. This guy, is, he just knows all of it. And um, he's, he's studied it extensively. And basically, when you get to 15 to 20% prevalence in the community, it dies off every single place. And so if 81% if of people have T-cell-mediated immunity, that number makes a whole lot of sense. Um, and, 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 you know, this whole herd immunity, you need 60, whatever, 70, that's, that's, that's absolutely false. It is, it is, it's an absolute myth that you need 60 to 70% for herd immunity. And I've been saying that since I've been making the post on the board. That's a myth. And it's based upon a, an assumption on the or not, how, how fast a virus spreads from one person to another or how many people can infect the next person. Okay, it's based upon that. And it completely discounts innate natural immunity to um, a virus like this. Um, and so that it's, 
a myth. People just need to get that that number out of their mind. It's false. So I keep asking and, about I keep asking about herd immunity to people because early in this in this thing, even when I was in the freakout phase. Early on, I heard a lot about herd immunity. Herd immunity is critical, and and now that that we we start to talk about herd immunity, people are like, oh well, it's not a real thing for 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 a country like the U.S. to get herd immunity. I think someone said a million people have to die. It has to be seventy five percent. I mean, what a load of crap. <laughs> I mean, that's another, well, we talked about our made-up numbers on here before. Two weeks, you know, now we've got a million deaths to get hurt. I mean, that's just a load of garbage. Maybe a million nursing home deaths, which they're trying to do. But, I, no, that's just not true. It, it, it's a total myth, and it's, it's based upon this calculation from non-respiratory diseases, okay? And so, I, I, and, 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 and diseases that aren't necessarily... I mean, a lot of things that we get that we get immunized against, they're not respiratory. Okay, a lot of things are fecal, oral. The, the way they pass that we get our immunizations for as young kids, um, you know. And so, a lot of the calculations for that have been based upon uh, things like that, not necessarily um, a, a respiratory virus. Where we're finding out more and more that maybe the reason fifty to seventy percent of people are asymptomatic is because they just have dead RNA. In their um, in their nasal passages, dead viral RNA in their nasal passages. That's what you're picking up by PCR, and that's why they don't have any symptoms. It's not because it's because they're not actually infected. Um, they fought it off in their nasal passages, and they still got residual dead viral RNA in their nasal passages in their nasal pharynx where the swab was taken. I mean, that would explain a lot of this these these variable asymptomatic numbers that we see. I've seen anywhere from 20 to 90. Um, and I think that if, if you really think about that 81% of people having some degree of uh, natural immunity, that number makes a whole lot more sense because that asymptomatic rate is going to depend on who you're testing because um, younger people are going to have a much better innate T-cell immunity than, say, an older person. Uh, and so when you, when you look at that asymptomatic number, the fact that you're getting all those different numbers from variable populations, the innate T-cell immunity would really explain that well. Um, and people are just discounting that, and I don't really understand why. Really smart people have discounted it, too. It's not just people who don't know what they're talking about. Um, I've seen some smart people discount innate immunity, but if you, if, you, if you go and you find some good virologists that have talked about this lately, th these guys are talking about it more and more now that these newer studies have been published. One said, I think, 60% innate T-cell immunity, the most recent one was 81%. Um, and now that those studies have been published and they were really well done um, with a nice random population, that is, I mean, to me, it just, it makes the second wave almost impossible. I, I mean, almost impossible. Um, this, it, we're going to have some cases. I mean, no question about it. Uh, but the second wave, it, it just, I, I think you're looking at more like, you know, a ripple uh, than you are a wave. Uh, now, could we have a second wave of cases? Oh, sure. We could have absolutely a second wave of cases. But cases aren't, you know, cases, I think everybody's kind of understanding now, cases aren't the end-all, be-all. You know, we care about people being in the hospital. We care about people in the ICU. We care about people in the ventilator. We care about ultimately how many people die from it. And so uh, cases become irrelevant if they're not tied to ultimately death or some type of major morbidity. Um, and so uh, I think we'll have some cases. Uh, there, there's no doubt about that. 
as we get back together, flights start again, all that stuff goes, we're going to have cases. Uh, but I, I don't think they're going to translate into a whole lot of death. There's the other time I'm, I'm keeping you way too long, so I'm, I promise I'm almost done. The, the, another thing that's come up today a lot the last couple of days is uh, along the lines of immunity and herd immunity is can people be reinfected with this? Can you get this, recover from this, test negative, all of that stuff, and then get it again? Well, so far the answer is no. We don't have any documented person who's got it twice. Uh, but that doesn't mean in two years they couldn't. Uh, you know, humor immunity, antibody mediated immunity just depends. It, 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 that, that's very variable from disease to disease. Um, so, you know, but I, I think that, um, the T, I think to me, the T cell mediated immunity is more important. Um, and it, it, we're finding out that through the course of this recently that, that that's, that's the thing we need to be looking for. Unfortunately, it's not. You know, you can't just go get a blood test and check your T-cell immunity. You know, whereas you can go get an antibody test pretty quickly and get results pretty fast now. So, but back to the being reinfected, I think the ultimate answer is probably not. The, 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 the real answer now is we don't know. Uh, but we can go based upon so far, no one has been reinfected and gotten sick again. Um, and so, uh, short term, no, absolutely not. Uh, I think we know the answer to that for sure. Uh, long term, beyond two years, we don't know, um, and I would say that it really probably doesn't matter from a humoral aspect, from an antibody aspect, because even the people, because if, if you look at this, the people, they go and test after they get sick, even those people don't have antibodies, some of them, a lot of them. So, and that is explained by, they started off with T-cells, they didn't need an antibody response. You know, they, they, even though they got sick, they, um, they, they did not need to mount an, an antibody response to the virus to fight it off. That's actually a really, really, really good thing. Uh, the first published study on that, people were, were talking about how bad it was, but it was actually a, it was really good news um, that you don't need antibodies to fight it off. And T-cell studies that are coming out now are explaining why we're seeing those results. Um, and so I think that's a long-winded answer. The, the short answer is right now, no, short, short term. Long term, we don't know. But I think the likelihood is, is very small. Uh, that, that, would be, that would be my answer. The likelihood is very small. Last thing, and then I'm going to let you go, and I really appreciate your time. This thing, we do kind of have these news cycles. A, a few weeks ago, there was some optimism. Now there's this, a lot of pessimism. People are really worked up. We're getting into the probably the, one of the hottest months of the year in July. August is always hot. If you had to look into your crystal ball and, and, and tell me what cases look like a month from today, two months from today, what would you anticipate? Depends on how much testing we're doing. I think that's the answer. Um, so you, you think, the, you think the, the numbers stay high for a while? I, I think that they stay high in the south east and the southwest for a little while now that that's i mean it's so dependent upon testing this makes it such a hard question to answer um but i you know here's the thing um I, i'm glad i'll win a little bit here uh, arizona seems to be slowing down uh when you look at it um from a symptom per show up in the er perspective from an admissions perspective Massive number of discharges in Arizona today. That was the one number I did see today because somebody made a comment about it, so I went and looked it up. 
Uh, I think they had uh, 400 some discharges today, uh, which is a huge number. Uh, they've been averaging about about 280. Uh, so I think Arizona is slowing down. Um, and so if Air, and Arizona's been a huge, they've been a huge contributor to the numbers of ICU patients that are being reported, huge contributor to the number of hospitalizations that have been reported. Um, and so if Arizona slows down and is, say, in their, you know, at the end of their peak, I think that's kind of where they are. And now they're kind of in that almost to the plateau, but not quite. Um, when they, so that means, if you if you if you use New York as a barometer for say Arizona and how they went up and then came back down, um, and I don't really want to compare those two because New York was a total disaster. Uh, but um, I would say by the end of, of this month, Arizona should be looking really good, uh, and I think uh, South Car- South California will probably be there. Seem to be about a week behind Arizona with all this when you look at the data. Um, so something similar there in South Carolina. Texas is a little different. It's, Texas has got variable cities with varying degrees of outbreak. Um, and so it's harder to say about Texas. Um, it seems like Houston's about to start cooling off, but uh, and Dallas is fine. Uh, Austin, who knows what's going to happen in Austin. The mayor, the mayor's crazy there, uh, and so is the, the director of health, public health. They're, they're, the decisions they make blow me away, not in a good way. Uh, but San Antonio seems to be, you know, having a lot of cases now. So Texas is different in, as far as, you know, you've got Southern Arizona, you've got Southern California, but Texas isn't like that. It's more diffuse and scattered uh, into multiple metropolitan areas. And so Texas is a little hard, harder to predict for me. They could have issues going into August, uh, just depending on how things go in Austin. Um, so, but I think Southern California and Arizona look pretty good by the end of this month. Um, and I think Florida looks pretty good by the end of this month as well. Uh, Florida's never really looked bad, honestly. Florida's handled this better than anybody. It's not even close. Um, except for maybe some of the, um, states like Iowa, South Dakota, you know, areas like that. But they, they don't have the population density to deal with that a place like Florida does. Yeah. So, so I, I think that I think that Florida, I think Ron DeSantis, I, I don't care what your political leanings are, the guy has handled this better than anybody. They have done the absolute best job with that population that they have, lean and elderly, the number of care homes that they have down there. You just they've 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 done a bang up job dealing with this, and uh, but they're they're really hard to predict just because they don't report hospitalizations, so it's hard to get a handle on the acuity. Although when they report and they do their press conferences, they say, well, we only have like 4% of our patients in the hospital are COVID-19 patients. And if that's true, that's great. And if that's true, I expect by the end of this month they're going to look, they're going to look pretty good as well. Um, so, you know, I, but testing, testing's gonna, testing's gonna be positive for a while. Just, it, it, if, especially if it continues to increase. I mean, we kind of plateaued off there in the four, 400 or 450 tests per day range for a long time, almost like a month, and it seemed like that was, I, I had said I had said that, that supply exceeded demand, and I still think supply exceeds demand, I think we could still be testing more people if we wanted to, um, <clears throat> but it's really ramped up, you know, a couple hundred thousand more tests a day in the last uh, week, uh, 10 days, and so, you know, if we're testing, if we start testing a million people a day, good lord, I mean, uh, we, 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 could, we could pick up 60, 70, 80,000 cases in a day if we're testing a million people a day. So, um, I, I, you know, the cases part of it is 
is one aspect when you ask the question. The other aspect, hospitalizations, deaths, I think by the end of July, I think we look good in, in hospitalizations and deaths because uh, there's not really any more very populous states to give us a problem. You know, all the populous states are, have already been affected or are currently being affected. And so when you, when you look at that, and if you use New York as kind of a barometer of a rise and fall over the course of a month to six weeks, um, you know, Arizona's halfway into that. Uh, California's probably close to it, and Texas is not far behind. So, um, and Florida, Florida's probably smack dab in the middle of it, honestly. They're probably in about the same uh, situation as Arizona. Uh, and, and so I think the, the, the long-winded answer is that. The short-winded answer is I think by the end of July and early August, we look pretty good just because all the heavily populated states are going to have been through it and on the other end of it. Well, I know I speak for a lot of people when I tell you that we appreciate uh, how much work you put into the, the message board post. I wish I could tell you that I was paying. I wish I could tell people I was paying you to do it, but I'm not. <laughs> um, it's, uh, That's all right. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a, a, a labor that, uh, that I know a lot of people appreciate, and uh, I hope you and your family have a great fourth. Y'all got big plans? Oh, man, I'm working. I'm on call. So, um, But my wife's birthday is tomorrow. So, uh, uh, you know, we always celebrate our birthday on the 4th, but uh, I'm on call. So uh, we're actually going to go to dinner tonight, And um, but uh, i got a, I got a good present for her tomorrow. So uh, it should be a good day no matter what, even if i got to work. Well, good. Well, happy birthday to her. Uh, stay safe, and we will talk to you soon, I hope. All right, Neil. Thanks for having me, man. Thank you, sir. Our thanks to Dr. Cunningham for his time today on the show. Hope you all enjoyed that. We've got a soft verbal podcast up with Zach Barry as well. Um, a lot of recruiting in that. That's up where you get your podcast. It's also up at rebelgrove.com. And um, have a safe fourth. Have a safe weekend. Be safe out there. We'll be back with another week of podcast here on the MPW Digital Network of Podcast. I think uh, Chase is planning to resume the podcast on Tuesday. Take uh, Monday off, celebrate the uh, finish celebrating the Fourth of July weekend. Be back Tuesday with another week of podcast. Until then, stay safe, take care. Talk to you soon.